Welcome to Dayspring Fellowship. Whether you are in the room live, watching live online, later on demand, or listening to our podcast, we are so honored that you've decided to join us today. Whether you know it or not, God is ready, willing, and able to breathe new life into your spiritual journey. And I promise you won't want to miss out on that. I'm Chris Voigt, and I lead the team here at Dayspring. Our team loves to challenge, encourage, and equip people just like you to become more like Jesus. There is nothing more important in life than your relationship with Him, and we are committed to helping you grow in your love and devotion to Him. If this is your first time visiting Dayspring, we want you to know that this is the kind of church where you get to be you. We're just like you, imperfect people on a journey. We're allowing Jesus to make something beautiful out of our broken and often messy lives learning to live like Him, a little more today than yesterday, a little more tomorrow than today. Even if you aren't sure that you're ready to be on that journey with us, maybe you are skeptical about the claims of Jesus or skeptical of His followers, well, this is still a great place, a safe place to explore and ask questions as you look for answers. We're asking those same questions and looking for answers too, so I think we can be pretty good company on your journey. You can learn more about us as a church by exploring our website at dsf.church, by checking out our Facebook page, or contacting us by phone or email. If you need help figuring out the next step to making Dayspring your home church, or if you just have questions, let us know. We'll help you find the answers. For today's service, you can find a discussion guide by selecting Watch from the top menu of our website. And now, let's join our service. It's not rocket science to look at me up here on the stage and recognize that I am not built for football. Uh, I, I didn't do much in the way of sports growing up, much to the dismay of a couple of my dads who would have loved to have a basketball player or a wrestler in the family. Neither interested me at all. We did sign me up for t-ball when I was six. I never made it to even one practice, but I did play in one game and I was tagged out because I didn't know that you had to follow the baseline. <laughs> so when the third baseman started chasing me with the ball, I gave him a run for his money and eventually made it to home plate, only to find out that I was out because I had broken the rules. And then my sister, cousins, and I were on the swim team for a few summers, uh, up early in the morning for laps and then laps before dinner. We didn't have to be on the swim team. We got to be on the swim team. <laughs> I can't remember if it was my mom or Aunt Lynn who tried to help us understand the difference. We've held that one against them collectively ever since. And either way, we hated it. So no football for me. I just, I don't get it. Now I'm not knocking it in any way. Just because I don't get it doesn't mean that you shouldn't either. I'm just, I'm, I'm sure there is an artistry to a good game uh, that is, isn't all that different from a good symphony. And I'd guess that looking at a football playbook, which is Greek to me, would be no different than looking at a symphonic orchestration for some of you. We are all unique creations of God made in part to enjoy his creation in a variety of ways. If we were all the same, life would be pretty boring. So bottom line here, uh, I, I'm going to tell you what I know about football. But even as I do, I'm flat out owning the, the fact that I know nothing. 
Uh, well, I know one thing. But other than that one thing, I know nothing. And I give all of you football fans permission to snicker at, laugh at, mock me. I am comfortable in my own skin. It took me 50 years to get that way, but, um, but now I'm good. I'm ready to be mocked. Here's what I know. If you want to win the game, you have to score. <laughs> and in order to score... You have to keep moving the ball down the field until you score. A strong defense is really important because you certainly want to keep the other team from scoring more points than you. But unless you put points on the board, you will never win the game. So keep moving the ball down the field. Now, even I recognize that there is more nuance that my pithy little statement conveys you have four downs to make it 10 yards, and if you do, you keep possession of the ball, and sometimes the opposing team pushes you back a few yards, which means you have three more downs to get 15 yards, etc., etc., etc. I have watched enough football to recognize that while a Hail Mary thrown by the, by the quarterback is super exciting, most of the time, moving the ball down the field happens a few yards at a time. You just have to keep making progress, even in the face of stiff opposition. And if you do, eventually you'll score. Now, what's more than a little ironic is that the idea of moving the ball down the field has shaped the way I have, I've approached my spiritual journey for most of my life, as well as how we look at our spiritual journey as a church body. There's this great verse in the Old Testament book of Zechariah that always encourages me. At, at the point in history where these words were written, the Jewish nation had been in exile in Babylon for 70 years. And now they were beginning to return to Israel with plans to rebuild the temple. But it was slow going all the way around. And an angel of the Lord says to Zechariah, Do not despise these small beginnings. For the Lord rejoices to see the work begin, to see the plumb line in Zerubbabel's hand. So God rejoices. He is blessed when we make even a little progress. Uh, near the end of his first letter to Timothy, the Apostle Paul, who has been encouraging Timothy in his role as a leader in the church, uh, he writes, Give your complete attention to these matters. Throw yourself into your tasks so that everyone will see your progress. The Apostle Peter describes progress this way in 2 Peter chapter 1. He, he tells the church that though our, through our relationship with Jesus, we have been given everything we need to become like Jesus. Therefore, in view of all of this, make every effort to respond to God's promises. Supplement your faith with a generous provision of moral excellence and moral excellence with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with patient endurance and patient endurance with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love for everyone. The more you grow like this, the more productive and useful you will be in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. No one begins their faith in Jesus having already achieved spiritual maturity, no matter how old you are chronologically. Though that would certainly be nice, it just isn't the way that God designed the process of becoming like Jesus. We become like Jesus 
one step at a time. And since we don't have to worry about the finish line until we step into eternity, until then, we are, we are called to keep making progress. We just keep moving the ball down the field, slowly becoming like Jesus. Now, if you're joining us today for the first time, we are working our way through the New Testament book of Hebrews in a series we've called Greater, the Supremacy of Christ through Hebrews. For most of us, on this side of history, the supremacy of Christ is pretty clear. But for these second-generation Hebrew Christians, the comfort and convenience of returning to the, the rituals of Judaism, the pressure to conform to their culture, especially in the face of persecution, was keeping them from moving the ball down the field on their spiritual journeys. Sound familiar? I would argue that a comfortable, convenient version of Christianity is the most prevalent version of Christianity in our Western culture and has been for too long. And though we certainly are seeing more and more pressure for the American church to conform to secular American culture, it doesn't really cost us anything to say that we are Christians, which allows us to be pretty casual in our approach to becoming like Jesus. If we few, lose a few yards here or there, or the quarterback gets sacked, it's no big deal. Now, all of that to say, the, the message of Hebrews, written to Hebrews, telling them to stop acting like Hebrews, is pretty relevant to us. To us Americans, who need to stop acting like Americans, and just become like Jesus. Now we're going to pick it up where we left off last week, beginning in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 11. But before we do, let me remind you that we find five admonitions or warnings scattered throughout the chapters of Hebrews. Together, they give us a picture of a changing trajectory on our spiritual journey. We are supposed to head true north. From the moment we surrender our lives to Jesus, our sole aim is to become like Jesus. He is the target. But the pull of comfort, convenience, and culture hold incredible power in our lives. But not more power than that raised Jesus from the dead who lives in us. So I guess it's not that, it, it's that we give comfort, convenience, and culture that kind of power over us. And when we do, we change the trajectory of our lives little by little until we miss the mark completely. Let me show you. In, second, in, in chapter 2, the warning is about drifting from the word, of, which was a warning about neglecting the word of God. In chapter 3, the warning was against having a hard heart, which leads to doubting the word of God. We find the third warning here in chapter 5, a warning against spiritual sluggishness or laziness, which leads, toward, leads to dullness toward the word. And when we get to chapter 10, the warning is against choosing to continue to live in sin, which leads to us despising God's word. And then last, chapter 12 warns that refusing to listen to God leads to defying God's word. And when you look at all five warnings together, you see a trajectory of someone headed not toward Jesus, but toward apostasy. An apostate is someone who at some point in their life seemed like a Christ follower, but who later rejects Christ by, by turning away from sound teaching and leaving the church. To be clear, 
True, regenerate believers cannot lose their salvation. If someone has been truly saved, if they have truly entrusted their life to Christ, then John 10, 28 makes it clear that their salvation is secure. At the same time, I think someday we'll get to heaven and not see some people that we thought would be there. As well as see some people that we thought wouldn't be there. The warning here and in other places in scripture about apostasy is an encouragement to stay the course. To keep making progress on our journey to become like Jesus. Move the ball down the field. So let's dive into this third warning beginning in Hebrews chapter 5 verse 11. There is much more we would like to say about this. But it is difficult to explain, especially since you are spiritually dull and don't seem to listen. Now, at first glance, this might seem like a bit of a rabbit trail. After all, in the verses just before this, the author is explaining what it means that Jesus is a high priest in the order of Melchizedek, a subject that he'll return to in chapter 7. These verses seem sandwiched in between that Melchizedekian explanation. But the entire book of Hebrews is making the case that Jesus is not only superior to anything in the Old Covenant, but he is superior to anything else that we might chase or worship. So don't chase or worship those things. And clearly they had begun, they had been chasing other things. Or maybe just not chasing Jesus. They had been drifting from the word of God, which led to doubting the word of God. And now they were on their way to relegating their Bible, so to speak, to a dusty shelf. Their spiritual apathy put them on a trajectory toward apostasy. We can, we can feel it in the tone of these verses. It's a tone of disappointment. It's like the author was ready to go deep as he further explained his train of thought on the, on the Jesus and Melchizedek connection. But then he realized he couldn't because it would be over their heads. They didn't have the spiritual basics down well enough to connect the dots on this deeper issue. They were spiritual toddlers. Now, what is a spiritual toddler, you might ask? Well, let's read verse 11 again. There is much more we would like to say about this, but it is difficult to, exp to explain, especially since you are spiritually dull and don't seem to listen. So the first mark of a spiritual toddler is spiritual dullness. They are unable to listen, or maybe even unwilling, not, bo not even bothering to listen. They are spiritually lazy, spiritually apathetic. Verse 12. You have been believers so long now that you ought to be teaching others. Instead, you need someone to teach you again the basic things about God's word. You are like babies who need milk and cannot eat solid food. So the second mark of a spiritual toddler, their lack of listening skills kept the word of God from getting any traction in their lives. They weren't letting the word of God transform their lives. It was just in one ear and out the other. As a result, instead of being contributing Christians, they were still consumer Christians. Until you start giving back, until you start serving the church instead of being served by the church, you are still a toddler, which is a very self-focused version of Christianity. Jesus calls us to a self-sacrificing life. Verse 13. For someone who lives on milk is still an infant and doesn't know how to do what is right. 
Spiritual toddlers are also unskilled when it comes to the word of God. They haven't learned to understand it. They haven't learned to apply it to their lives. Now, this doesn't mean that you have to become a Bible scholar. But in order to move out of your spiritual toddler years, you must be growing in your knowledge of God. You must be growing in the application of God's word, God's truth to your life. You have to get to the point where your own study of God's word is shaping your life more than my study of God's word is shaping your life or any other teacher that you follow or listen to online. And then verse 14. Solid food is for those who are mature, who through training have the skill to recognize the difference between right and wrong. Spiritual toddlers are unable to discern or maybe can't always tell the difference between right and wrong. If you doom scroll through uh, social media platforms, any of them, you find example after example of bad theology shared by, I hope, well-intended, but undiscerning spiritual toddlers. TikTok theology is leading people in the wrong direction 30 seconds at a time. Of course, this isn't a problem confined to social media. Social media just makes it readily accessible. Basically, because the capital C church in the U.S. is filled with spiritual toddlers, it's not all that hard to dress up a lie as the truth. Some of you might remember that I make a pretty mean macaroni and cheese from scratch. It is head and shoulders above anything that you might find in a box. And a few years ago, I made it right here while I preached. But as good as my macaroni is, as superior as it is to that boxed brand, my granddaughter Avery still won't eat it. I don't know what she's thinking. She still prefers boxed macaroni. Because even though it isn't as good for her, it doesn't look the same. So it must not be as good. To grow up spiritually, we must be able to discern the difference between the truth and a lie. Between what sounds good and what is good. Toddlers can't tell the difference, so they settle for less. If you aren't growing in your faith, you are more susceptible to deception. Now, I'd, I'd like to encourage you to take some time this week and pray over these four characteristics of a toddler's spirituality. Where does God want to do something new in you? How can you move the ball down the field? As we move into chapter 6, let me just say that we are not trying to grow spiritually in order to earn God's favor. Or get him to love us more. Or to impress him with our zeal. Because of Jesus, we already have all of God's favor. Because of Jesus, we already have all of God's love. And because of Jesus, we don't need to impress him. So that's not what our spiritual growth is about. We grow because he loves us. And because he, because it's best for us... He wants us to grow, to become like Jesus. He knows that as we discover who he has created us to be and what he has created us to do, that this lost and dying world will lose its power over us. As we grow, we will more and more enjoy the freedom that comes through righteous living over the bondage that comes through self-focused rebellion. 
And since we want to be the kind of people who strive for growth, Hebrews 6 is going to offer us some hopeful encouragement. Let's look at verse 1. So, let us stop going over the basic teachings about Christ again and again. Let us go on instead, or let us build on those basic teachings and become mature in our understanding. And what are those basic teachings? Well, surely we don't need to start again with the fundamental importance of repenting from evil deeds and placing our faith in God. So one basic teaching is how you become a Christian through repentance and belief in Jesus. And then verse 2, you don't need further instruction about baptisms, the laying on of hands. Sometimes the laying on of hands was associated with baptism and it was symbolic of receiving the Holy Spirit. But here the author is saying the relationship of a believer to the local church is the second basic teaching. And the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And this last basic teaching is about our, our understanding of Jesus' second coming to judge and then rule the earth and our eternity with him. And so, God willing, we will move forward to further understanding. So God willing, we will build upon these basics, these core doctrines. These three verses are a call to, to spiritual progress. Move the ball down the field, people. Don't stay stuck. Grow up. And now, let's just breathe for a moment. Because we're not done yet. We've already covered a lot of ground and we're, we're about to move from toddler theology to grown-up theology. So take a deep breath. Because uh, ready or not, let's read verses 4 to 6. And as I read, note the phrases that I've put in bold print. For it is impossible to bring back to repentance those who were once enlightened, those who have experienced the good things of heaven and shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the power of the age to come, and who then turn away from God. It is impossible to bring such people back to repentance. By rejecting the Son of God, they themselves are nailing him to the cross once again and holding him up to public shame. Okay, as is true whenever we get to a spiritually complex passage, scholars are all over the map when it comes to interpreting what the writer of Hebrews means here. One scholar argues that this is a warning against apostasy. Willfully turning one's back on Jesus Christ and returning to your old life. And according to this scholar, apostates, according to this passage, would be lost forever. They'd lose their salvation. Now the problem with this view is that the Greek word for apostate or apostasy isn't used in these verses. And there are too many other verses, including ones that we'll get to today, that say just the opposite. That salvation isn't something that you can lose. And those who teach that you can lose your salvation also teach that you can get it back if you repent. These verses from this view say that that's impossible. So there are too many unexplained contradictions for this argument to hold much weight. Other scholars argue that the author of Hebrews is talking about people who are not true believers in the first place. But that argument also doesn't hold much weight when you look at how these verses are phrased. 
just look at all of those bold phrases that we just read. Those who were once enlightened, ex- experienced the good things of heaven, shared in the Holy Spirit, tasted the goodness of the word of God and the power of the age to come. All of those phrases describe people who have had an authentic life change because of Jesus. They have genuinely experienced the gift of salvation. So argument two doesn't hold any more weight than argument one. There is a third argument that these verses only apply to those second generation Hebrews who were returning to the rituals of Judaism in the temple and that they don't apply to anyone else. Which doesn't make sense in the larger context of Jesus as our high priest in the new covenant. A fourth argument, which makes the most sense to me so far, is that the author is talking about a hypothetical situation. And is actually trying to prove that true believers cannot lose their salvation. Which is the opposite take of the first two arguments. If this is the case, then what the author would be saying is keep growing spiritually. What are your other options anyway? Suppose you do choose not to grow spiritually. Does that mean you go backwards into condemnation? That you would lose your salvation? Of course not. If you could lose your salvation, it would be impossible to get it back again. And that would, be a, that would disgrace Christ. He would have to be crucified again for you, and that can't happen. So you can see how this argument could have merit. In the larger context, it does make sense. But there is one more argument that also makes sense. Notice the phrasing at the end of verse 6. And those who turn away from God... It is impossible to bring such people back to repentance. By rejecting the Son of God, they themselves are nailing him to the cross once again and holding him up to public shame. Both of the bold statements are in present tense. They are nailing and they are holding him up to public shame. So this argument would say that while the true believer is in rebellion... They can't come back to repentance. Until they stop their disgraceful actions, they can't be brought back to repentance. But when they are no longer actively in rebellion, they can. However you interpret this section, and I lean toward argument four or five, the author isn't trying to scare people straight. He's trying to assure them. If you you put everything we've covered so far together, the author is saying the time has come for you to grow up. You can't be a spiritual toddler forever. You need to move the ball down the field and make progress on your spiritual journey. But note, making progress isn't about losing or keeping your salvation. It's about, well, let's move on to see. Verses 7 to 10. When When the ground soaks up the falling rain and bears a good crop for the farmer... It has God's blessing. But if a field bears thorns and thistles, it is useless. The farmer will soon condemn that field and burn it. Dear friends, even though we are talking this way, we really don't believe it applies to you. We are confident that you are meant for better things. Things that come with salvation. For God is not unjust. He will not forget how hard you have worked for him and how you have shown your love to him by caring for other believers As you still do. Spiritual growth isn't about losing or keeping your salvation. It's about your fruitfulness. Think about Jesus' parable of the the sower and the different types of soil. 
as well as the Apostle Paul's teaching in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 about, the test, about fire testing the measure of our works. Here in these verses, a field proves its worth by bearing fruit. And in the same way, we, by our spiritual progress, bear fruit for God's glory. The good crop that gets God's blessing in verse 7 is or are the things that come with salvation in verse 9. And this fruit that we bear in verses 9 and 10 is the same kind of fruit for everyone. Every one of us. We all bear the same kind of fruit. But we don't all bear the same amount of fruit. That fruit is probably best described as the fruit of the Spirit found in Galatians chapter 5. Love, that is the example the author uses in verse 10. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. We are all called to some measure of this fruit in and through our lives. They're measured, that is our maturity is measured by how well we give them away. This isn't fruit for us to hoard, but fruit for us to share. All the same fruit, just different amounts, produced by the Holy Spirit as we mature in Christ. Which makes fruit the litmus test for true salvation. We don't receive our salvation by works, or in this case fruit. We can't earn it. It is the free, free gift of God for those who believe in Jesus. But though we don't receive our salvation by works, James, the half-brother of Jesus and leader in the early church in Jerusalem, tells us that faith without works is dead. So if you ever want a gut check on your own salvation, examine your life. Is there fruit? Is there more fruit today than yesterday? Or is your fruit rotting on the vine? And on that pleasant note, the author ends this encouragement towards spiritual progress with the encouragement to be diligent in our pursuit of spiritual maturity. Verse 11. Our great desire is that you will keep on loving others as long as life lasts in order to make certain that what you hope for will come true. Then you will not become spiritually dull and indifferent. Instead, you will follow the example of those who are going to inherit God's promises because of their faith and endurance. So as the Apostle Paul would say, press on toward the goal to win the prize. Again, keep the ball, moving the ball down the field. Now, the reality is that not one of us is perfectly pursuing our spiritual maturity, even me. None of us have arrived at perfect yet. Not even practically perfect in every way. Yet. Our enemy is really good at using condemnation to get us to doubt the goodness of God. To get us to doubt our own standing with God. Especially when we are in one of those imperfect seasons in our lives. So as we close out this section, the writer speaks into the assurance of our salvation with three arguments to set our minds at ease. The first is God's promise, beginning in verse 13. For example, there was God's promise to Abraham. Since there was no one greater to swear by, God took an oath in his own name saying, I will certainly bless you and I will multiply your descendants beyond number. Then Abraham waited patiently and he received what God had promised. When you, when you read the details of Abraham's life, you find the story of a man with imperfect character. Yet in spite of his sins and weaknesses, God kept his promise and Sarah delivered Isaac. Theologian Warren Wiersbe reminds us that many of God's promises 
do not depend on our character, but on his faithfulness. Uh, Many of the Hebrews receiving this letter were at risk of giving up on their spiritual journey. But the message here is to hold on to God's promises. We must play the game. Imagine what this sermon would be like if I actually did know something about football. But we must play the game as if the win depends on us. Knowing in faith that God's already promised the win. And as if God's promise wasn't enough, according to verse 16, we can also count on his oath as the second promise of assurance. Now, when people take an oath, they call on something greater than themselves to hold them to it. And without any question, that oath is binding. God also bound himself with an oath so that those who received the promise could be perfectly sure that he would never change his mind. So God has given both his promise and his oath. These two things are unchangeable because it is impossible for God to lie. Therefore, we who have fled to him for refuge can have great confidence as we hold to the hope that lies before us. In all of those TV court dramas that we've seen, whenever a witness is sworn in, they end the oath with, so help me God. They are calling on something greater to witness something lesser. Since God is the highest there is, he swore by himself. True Christ followers are among those who, as it says in verse 17, have received the promise. uh, That is, we are inheritors of God's promise and oath to Abraham through Jesus. Because we have fled to Jesus in verse 18, he has become our eternal refuge, which makes him The third promise of assurance. Verse 19. This hope is a strong and trustworthy anchor for our souls. It leads us through the curtain into God's inner sanctuary. Jesus has already gone there for us. He has become our eternal high priest in the order of Melchizedek. So our hope is in Christ. He is the anchor for our souls. The anchor was a popular symbol in the early church. Wearsby writes that 66 pictures of anchors have been found in the catacombs. Jesus is our anchor, the hope of our souls. But there is a difference between a material anchor and our anchor. Wearsby writes, for one thing, we are anchored upward to heaven, not downward. We are anchored not to stand still, but to move ahead. Our anchor is sure. It cannot break. It is steadfast. It cannot slip. No earthly anchor can give that kind of security. And returning to our high priest from the order of Melchizedek, our high priest has gone before us and made a way for us to join him in the holiest of holies holies there could ever be. No earthly priest can, can make the same claim because nobody could follow him into the holy of holies. So no matter how imperfectly we make progress, we don't ever have to worry about condemnation from above. As long as we hold on to our anchor, as long as we center our lives on him, he will keep us moving in the right direction toward the goal to win the prize. Let's pray. Father, thank you that Everything that is true about our salvation is true because of Jesus. And it doesn't depend on us.
We are so fallible. We, we, I, don't, I don't think there's an hour a day that we don't go, we, we don't go through something that, that causes us to sin. I, I think sometimes we're so comfortable in our sin that we, we, we just take for granted that it is sin. Which is part of the problem in the American culture of the church overall. But we don't want to be like that, Jesus. We want to follow you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We want you to do your perfect work in us, making us into the image of Jesus in every aspect of our lives. So Father, strip away the junk that distracts us and reveal to us what we need to do to move the ball down the field. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for joining us today. Let me encourage you to download the discussion guide by selecting Watch from the top menu of our website. Working through those questions on your own or with others will help the truth of God's Word begin to shape your life as you grow to be like Jesus. Please reach out if you have any questions or want help on your spiritual journey. My email address is on the screen or you can call the church during the week. If you are just checking us out today, please know that we don't expect you to give anything to support Dayspring. We count it a privilege to play a small part in God's perfect work in you today. The people who call Dayspring their home church make this ministry possible. Their faithful giving is proof of God's work in their lives and they want to pay it forward so you can experience the same life-changing presence of Jesus. For those of you who would like to start giving, we have three easy ways for you to get us your gift. Please see the online giving section of our website or text GIVE to the number on your screen or mail a check to us at the address you'll find on our website. Until we meet again, I am praying that God will give you opportunities to use your influence for the glory of His kingdom. One easy way to do that is to share this service with your friends and family. If this service was a blessing to you, it'll probably be a blessing to someone else too. Thank you for liking, sharing, and following Dayspring on whatever platform you connect with us. Thank you for rating us where that is appropriate. All of these simple acts of kindness on your part, God uses to plant seeds in other people's lives. So keep sowing.